G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, our weekly half-hour podcast radio show here at The Constant Investor with me, Alan Kohler. And it's been another huge week. Thursday morning, the Fed hiked interest rates as entirely expected, but it's still a big deal. And on Wednesday, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull dragged gas company chiefs to Canberra for a chat about the domestic gas crisis. And he also announced a $2 billion expansion of the Snowy Hydro Scheme. And that was a day after the South Australian government announced its plan to build new gas-fired power stations and to put some batteries in the state's power system. So the state turns into the Energizer Bunny. As far as we can tell, the gas company CEOs told the PM that they were already working to increase domestic gas supplies and everything would be fine. After which Malcolm emerged looking very stern and saying he had laid down the law and given them the rounds of the kitchen and told them to do what they were already doing. But that's politics, isn't it? Anyway, my mate Giles Parkinson, publisher of the website Renew Economy, reckons the Snowy Hydro announcement is a very big deal indeed. Well, look, I think it's probably one of the most significant um, interventions in the market since the last time they built a Snowy Hydro scheme 50 years ago, which is um, almost when it was completely started before then. Look, this is significant for a bunch of reasons. It's two gigawatts of hydro storage, which will basically act as a kind of peaking plant. It'll be balancing out the um, variability of wind and solar. It's significant because basically it kills the gas generation industry stone dead or any idea that you're going to build new gas plants because this will simply be much cheaper than any gas generator. It's probably a good thing there. It might actually free up gas reserves for other manufacturing uses, but it just basically says that's the end of um, gas generation. So we know there's not going to be any more coal generation. We know there's not, we now it looks like there's not going to be any new gas generation. Basically, he's paving the way for a renewable energy grid over a period of decades, solar, wind, hydro, which the ANU actually did in a report a couple of weeks ago, said would actually be the cheapest solution anyway and will probably average around $75 a megawatt hour, which, if anyone's been looking at wholesale prices in the last couple of months, is probably about half the average price of the eastern seaboard. So, hugely significant announcement. It's not the whole thing. You need, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. It does rely on extra transmission lines there. You don't want to have everything coming out of the snowy hydro. You need more pumped hydro around the country. But if you combine pumped hydro with battery storage, a lot of that going behind the meter, a lot of that in electric vehicles, a lot of it in buildings, then pretty much you've then got the um, right amount of backup power and flexibility a shift from a fossil fuel-based load system to a flexible renewable system. Isn't that interesting that, you know, they've been sort of against renewables, but what you're saying is that the, this week's announcement is actually going to speed up the conversion of the Australian electricity grid to renewables. Well, it kind of, I don't know whether it's going to sort of speed it up, but it kind of gets rid of all the major arguments that stood in its way. Um, because everyone's just sort of saying, oh, we can't have wind and solar because you need base load. You can't have wind and solar because you need more gas. But this actually shows that, well, you don't have to start thinking in terms of, you don't have to think in terms of base load because you've got the pumped hydro, which is quite fast reacting. Um, you have battery storage, which we're now seeing is coming in to the markets. So it does change the whole conversation. There is one possible fly in the ointment for wind and solar, and that is that if this pumped hydro scheme gets built, say, by 2022, 2024, it will start producing large-scale um, renewable energy certificates. 
And that is going to dilute the value of those LGCs for the last five years of the scheme quite significantly. All of a sudden, you're going to have a surplus. Now, that could cause some rethinking of the financing for developers of wind and solar projects. Right now, they're going hell for leather because the REIT scheme provides huge incentives. I wouldn't be surprised if they're sitting there going, oh, hang on, if this pumped hydro thing starts producing LGCs in 2022, 2023, 2024, we are going to have to basically write down our estimates of LGCs to pretty much zero from that time and make sure our finances work with that in mind. You highlight the point that it's going to take a while to get this thing in the Snowy Mountains built. And I heard Danny Price of Frontier Economics on the radio this morning saying that uh, not only will it take a long time, it's not even certain that it'll happen because his experience over decades with the Snowy Hydro is that it's hard to get everyone to agree and get anything done. Well, there is a complication that there are three separate shareholders there. There's the um, New South Wales government, there's the federal government and the Victorian government, I think, still holds a stake. That's right. To be honest, I'm not too sure. It's three of them. That's right, and, and via the Snowy Hydro Company. So, yes, and it was interesting to know that the New South Wales didn't seem to be, <laughs> hadn't been briefed on this idea beforehand. So, um, that's going to be interesting. So, um, to that extent, it may well be a thought bubble, but if it is, does go ahead and we'll, we'll find out um, over the next few days and weeks just how determined they are, if it does go ahead, those are the implications. Because when I heard the announcement about the Snowy Hydro, Pumped Hydro, uh, storage scheme, I thought, oh, well, uh, he's just trying to come up with something other than batteries because he's against batteries because the Labor Party in South Australia is pro-battery, so therefore he has to be against batteries and he's trying to come up with an alternative. What's going on with batteries? Well, um, just on that point, actually, it's quite interesting that Turnbull and um, Frydenberg actually criticised the South Australian government for sort of announcing a $500 million scheme of their own before the Finkel review came out. But Here's actually Turnbull and Frydenberg announcing a $2 billion scheme of their own before the Finkel review came out. So they're both being preemptive. Actually, it looks like it's starting to happen. I mean, we've seen the uh, we've seen this extraordinary Twitter conversation between um, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Elon Musk last week. We saw how that galvanised public interest. It got Malcolm Turnbull on the phone for an hour-long conversation with Elon Musk on Sunday. It got Jay Weatherall on the phone. It's got everyone excited about it. Most of all, it's kind of highlighted what everybody has been saying for a couple of months now or even longer, that um, battery storage can be competitive with existing generation like gas. It probably needs a few rule changes. Under certain systems, it can um, actually reduce costs um, almost immediately. And we're about to see the rollout of it at a significant scale because we've got South Australia doing a tender, we've got Victoria doing a tender, and we've got a whole bunch of different behind-the-meter sort of household and business scale schemes around the country. So how do we invest in batteries? With great difficulty, I think. Look, most of the batteries we're seeing at the moment are lithium-ion batteries, and almost all of them, or in fact all of them exclusively, are made by companies overseas. You know, they've got Tesla, you can invest in Tesla, but, I mean, they're a much <laughs> huge company. I can't judge whether they've already sort of, you know, done their dash or not. And others are made by um, Chinese and Japanese and German um, companies. Now, there are alternative technologies, and this is where Australia does come in. We've, we've got Redflow, which is the Brisbane-based and probably now South Australia-based um, listed company that does zinc bromine flow batteries. Different technology. Not too sure whether it's going to work in Australia now in the domestic market because of the recent cost falls, but could be very interesting in the utility scale or, or grid scale market, you know, big businesses and telecoms and things like that. 
There's another company called Australian Vanadium. It's got something called Vanadium Redox batteries. Once again, like zinc bromine, big depth of discharge, 100%. You can charge it up as many times as you want, last longer than lithium iron. Cost competitive, not so sure. Once again, not great in households, probably good at utility scale. And they use these, um, these batteries are brought in by a company called Gildermeister, um, which is from Germany and Australian Vanadium's interest in, in it, of course, is that they actually mine vanadium and produce it. What do you think of investing in the traditional electricity companies? Well, look, there's a big debate about electricity companies. I don't see how they can make that transition over the long term. You know, you've got this, basically these businesses which are set up for centralised generation being retailers, they're vertically integrated, their retail basically relies and, and is basically a hedge on the huge generation assets and the generation assets are a hedge on their retail assets. What we are heading to over time is a completely different system. It's going to be distributed. It's going to be behind the meter. It's going to be an energy service. Now, how those big companies make that transition is a big question. A lot of people think that you can, you cannot do it. Some companies in Germany have actually split because they realize they can't do it. They, they can't see how they can get over the core business and cultural issues. Because uh, you really got to think completely different about your system as you're going along and it's a bit like sort of Kodak, you know. They knew digital films were here. They actually had it. They developed it themselves. But they wouldn't go forward with it because they wouldn't, didn't want to can- cannibalize their um, existing business. In the end, they let it go and everybody else cannibalized their existing business. And that's the big question about how those utilities can actually change their huge ships and point in another direction. And then whether to recommend battery stocks is another question. I mean, I would point out that Acreon Power this is this US-based company which had um, saltwater-based batteries. A lot of people were very excited about them. Had a rollout of um, quite a few installations in Australia. They went bankrupt um, this week. So once again, really nice battery, no pollution, nothing that couldn't compete on costs. And um, whether somebody else actually takes that technology and runs with it and finds a way to reduce the cost, that's the key. And it all just comes down to the competition. You've got to have the smartest, the best, but most importantly, the cheapest thing at the end. But overall, and bottom line, it feels like the energy business is in the process of being disrupted as much as the media business was disrupted. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, look, if you think about it, we've got all the coal and gas generators. A lot of them, two-thirds of them, are going to have to retire over the next 10 to 15 years. You look at what technology is going to replace them, there is absolutely no doubt that there's going to be solar PV and wind energy because they are by far the cheapest. They're falling all the time. So now you've got things like pumped hydro coming in and battery storage coming in. They can provide the balance and the backup and the system security to do that. You're just looking at a completely different system. And now people have been talking about this for, for years now, but now the costs have come down to the point where it's kind of like a no-brainer and uh, when you've got government starting to think in this way too, then you know that you've actually sort of got the change at hand. And look, it doesn't mean that coal and gas is going to disappear from the system within you know, three years, by 2020, by 2025. But I think the phase out is going to be quicker than most people in the industry appreciate because it's going to kind of snowball. And um, yeah, huge change. the Fed rate hike now and I'll be analysing this in more detail on Saturday morning but the most important question is how should you invest in a time of increasing interest rates 
Now, one of the best investors in the country is Tim Samway of Hyperion Asset Management. And he's outperformed the ASX by 5% a year for 20 years, so he knows a thing or two. I asked him how investors should play the interest rate cycle. So this has been expected, so this is hardly a surprise. And the way we've been playing it for a very long period of time, in fact for 20 years now, is to take a bottom-up approach to cycles like this. And so interest rates will invariably rise and fall over time. Um, and if we're in the middle of a, or the start of a uh, interest rate rising cycle, um, investors need to be concentrating on businesses that can generate excess returns during these periods. And so they're, they're periods with low levels of capital intensity, so you know, not big capital intensive businesses, and businesses without much debt. These are the businesses that are going to survive really well in a, in a higher interest rate environment. And assuming there's some inflation going with this, because that's really why the, the Fed is working, they've finally decided that maybe there are the, the green shoots of inflation. Um, they need businesses with um, pricing power and high margins who can survive in this sort of period. Just cycle back a bit. The businesses that are low capital intensive, uh, explain what they might be. Yeah, so a lot of the online businesses um, are... Very, have very low capital intensity. That is, they are high cash flow businesses and they actually have no, no buildings, no mines, no nothing to reconstruct, nothing to, to spend on year after year to keep it up to date. And that means they're not having to service the capital with higher interest rates. Correct. That's right. And they don't need the debt because they're cash flow businesses. So they don't need to go and borrow at ever increasing interest rates. The other effect, I guess, will be rising the US dollar probably. Yes. Uh, does that mean that you're now focusing more on the US than you would otherwise um, be? Look, we do focus on the US because that's got some of the uh, the best um, secular growth stories that we can see in the world. But no, we tend to take a very long-term view on currencies and we tend to buy businesses that can manage their own currency exposure. So we don't spend a lot of time trying to guess the future direction of interest rates because just when you think that rising interest rates in the US are going to support the US dollar, something else will come along to combat that and then you find yourself in a completely different position. So, but Do you have a position or a view that the US dollar is going to rise? We have a very neutral position on the US dollar over the long term, and that is in the long term cycle, while uh, currencies may uh, rise and fall, the reality is you'll make a lot more money out of buying businesses that can increase their earnings in double digit over long periods of time. That is, the, the compounding effect of that is much more over five to ten years than uh, a currency will, a, a small currency movement over short periods of time will, will make. In fact, rising interest rates in the US um, and probably elsewhere in the world, but not yet, uh, is one of a number of themes that are swirling around at the moment. One of them is China. Another is uh, obviously Trump. What's going on with that? European politics, um, Australian politics, automation. There's so many things to think about. How do you pick your way through these themes? Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we're based in Brisbane, other than the fact that um, it's a great place to live, is that it's out of the noise and you actually can um, get completely involved in that noise and forget what's happening. So I'll give you an example. During the GFC, there were a lot of bright people who saw some version of the GFC coming and a lot of them were managing a lot of money. And they were all on the ship sailing towards the iceberg called the GFC and they focused on it so completely they hit it. <laughs> and they went down with the ship. Very few people actually profited from the big macro opportunity there. And there were a couple that did, but most people found it very difficult to actually profit from that period. And, and I think it's the same here, you know, whether it's Trump and the, you know, the reality TV show that seems to be you know, following him at the moment, or all those other things you mentioned. There's just too much there, 
And so we stay focused on the bottom up, which is find really brilliant businesses that can operate in environments like that well and grow their earnings over time. And the, the theory behind that is, and which turns into practice, is that buying a rising earning stream over time, prices will follow the high correlation between price and earnings over long periods of time. Not so much in the short term, but over periods greater than five years, you get a very strong correlation between the earnings of companies growing and the price of them. But in choosing and looking for those companies, don't you have to put it in the context of the industry they're operating in and what's going on in that industry and also in the world that they're operating? You absolutely do, and that's why we avoid whole industries. So, so our portfolios don't look like the normal portfolio. We have virtually no exposure to mining over long periods of time because we can't predict commodity prices. So you can't predict long-term earnings when a company's profits are predicated on the future price of a commodity that they have no control over. We don't invest in pharmaceutical companies, often binomial outcomes. So you know, it's either win massively or lose massively. A lot of those pharmaceutical companies have big earnings cliffs, that is, you know, a, a drug is patented for a period and then it just drops off at the end. So we just go through and manage the macro risks that, that you mentioned by not being exposed to certain areas. So developing nations, our global fund is not exposed to developing nations except through say a US business that is building its uh, business in China, for example. So a good example might be Starbucks. You know, it's a good business, it's in America, it's building its business in footprint in America, but it's also building its footprint in China, which allows us the, the, the risk management that goes with first world accounting rules, first world governance, first world rule of law, all of that sort of stuff, um, IP protection. for something different. Do you know what a dark pool is? No, it's not something in the backyard at night with the lights out. It's a special part of the stock exchange where you can buy and sell anonymously, unlike what they call the lit market. Both the ASX and its competitor, Chai X, have them, and they're growing rapidly because investors want to get away from high-frequency algorithmic trading, which requires the computers to know all the details of the orders. I spoke to both the CEO of ChaiX, John Files, and the bloke at the ASX in charge of what they call Centrepoint, Richard Atkins. That's their dark pool operation. Here's John Files, and I started by asking him a bit about ChaiX. Well, we've got about 20% market share of trading in regular ASX equities now. But I think the most exciting thing is that we've now got close to 50% of all ETF volumes going through ChaiX. And we know that these are a key focus for retail investors. And, you know, retail is a, is a big area that we're planning some big product launches on this year. What do you offer that uh, the ASX doesn't? Why have you managed to get that market share? Look, I think one of the key things is that we are cheaper than the ASX. Uh, so, you know, for Comsec, when somebody executes a trade through Comsec or Sela or, or one of those other brokers, it's cheaper for the broker to execute on us. But on top of that, possibly more importantly, we offer price improvement. So the retail investor gets a chance to get a better price by trading on ChiX, mainly because we have an integrated dark midpoint. Now, you may have heard of Centerpoint on ASX, which is a separate venue. And they charge three times as much to trade on that as they do on their regular market. So 
that's quite expensive. That's half a basis point, three times as much as they normally charge. Whereas our dark midpoint, which is just the same, is integrated. So everybody who sends an order into our market has the chance of saving half the spread at no extra cost to them. So I understand the point about this dark midpoint, or what the ASX calls the centre point, is to provide institutional investors with the opportunity to get away from computerised algorithmic traders. Is that correct? Uh, To some extent, yes. I mean, the size of trade executed in our midpoint is much higher on average than it is on our regular lit market, in that the average size of the trade is about thirty dollars or $40,000. So it's a very large-sized trade. But what we see happening is that the large institutional investors will rest an order at our midpoint, a passive order, and then somebody trading from their retail brokerage account will send an aggressive order in to cross the spread and will hit them at that midpoint, and they'll save half the spread in the process. Could you explain that a bit better? But when a retail investor is sitting there and looking at the screen and they see a price on the screen, on the bid or the offer, they'll send an order in, and that's called an aggressive order because it's going to cross the spread and hit the bid or lift the offer. So let's say, for example, they're wanting to buy and the price is showing 30 and 30.05. If they're going to buy, they're willing to pay the 30.05, the higher price, by crossing the spread. But if something's sitting there at the midpoint, it'll be sitting there at 30.025. So it's half the price point between. And if there is a dark order from a large institutional investor sitting there, then your listener crossing the spread will hit that and hit at a better price than they would do if they got the price that they're seeing on the screen. What's the advantage for the institutional investor to miss out on the 30.05? They're willing to pay the extra in order to not to show their hand. It's like a poker player. He doesn't want to show what he's got in his hand. And if you're a large institutional investor trying to sell or buy a million shares in CBA or BHP, you don't want to let people know because that's going to move the market against you. So you would rather rest in the mid, in the dark, and you're willing to pay a little bit extra to get executed without people knowing that you're there. And one of the reasons, as I understand it, for that is that uh, a lot of the computerized traders, they'll ping them one stock at a time to make sure they're there. Yeah, we prevent that by offering what we call a minimum execution quantity. So that the large institutions sitting there can say that they're not willing to execute unless somebody is sending in at least a 1,000 shares. So... That makes it impractical for the so-called high-frequency traders to keep pinging this dark midpoint with 1,000 share orders or 10,000 share orders or 100,000 share orders because it's going to cost them a lot of money to trade. So we offer that minimum execution quantity to give the institution protection against somebody just trying to find out if there are people sitting there in the dark. And is this dark midpoint the fastest growing part of your business? Um, you know, it's probably not, funnily enough. I mean, it's a, it's a solid 15% of our business today. Um, but the fastest growing part of our business is probably our retail-focused products, so our 
own warrants market, which are uniquely listed on Chiax. We'll shortly be launching uniquely listed ETFs. And then later in the year, we'll be launching trading in U.S. equities in Australian dollars, which we expect to be very successful. Can the retail investors say that they want to trade on Chiax or is that up to their broker? The interesting thing is that normally the broker decides, but it's not the broker making a conscious decision. It's a thing called a smart order router. And that's a bit of technology that sits there between the retail investor and the marketplace that looks at both ASX and Chiax in real time and looks at where the best price is. If there's a better price on Chiax, it'll send the order to Chiax. And if there's a better price on the ASX, it'll send the order to the ASX. But it's totally automated. And that's why our market share has been growing, because it's not a conscious decision. It's solely based on best price. The brokers will preference Chiax for this flow because of this opportunity that it gives their clients for getting price improvement at the midpoint. And are you um, routinely providing a better price, are you? We're routinely providing a better price, yes. Certainly under the ASIC definition, because that includes the cost of executing the trade. So first of all, it's cheaper for the retail broker to trade on us, and that means that they can keep their prices low to to the investor. And then secondly, because we offer that that opportunity to get price improvement of half the spread, Um, most retail brokers tend to preference our market over the ASX. So as long as our price is as good as or better than the ASXs, the order will come to us. And so uh, your current market share is uh, 20% overall and what, 50% of ETFs, is that right? Yes, that's right. Amongst retail brokers, our market share is much higher. So, for example, the largest retail brokers such as Share Investing Limited, X, Comsec, State One, Open Markets, we get about 50% market share in their aggressive order flow. And is that continuing to grow? I mean, where do you think that will settle? Oh, look, we're sort of almost heading into new territory here because obviously there are competing stock exchanges in markets around the world. And in Europe, that's Europe has got about 25% market share. In the US, uh, all of the competing venues put together have probably got 60% market share. But you know, for a single venue such as ourselves to be already over 20% market share is a very singular sign of success. And we see it growing literally almost on a monthly basis. So we don't know quite where it will end. I'd certainly like it to be 50-50. We shall see. (laughs) And how much of your turnover is computerised? It's difficult to say because in terms of whether the person sending it in is is sending it to a computer, do you mean? Algorithmic trading. Well, I mean, I would actually say that most of your retail listeners, uh, clients, are actually trading algorithmically. They don't realise it, but if you... Go back to what I was saying about the retail brokers using smart order routers. Those orders are actually going through an algorithm, and that algorithm is seeking out the best price on the different available markets. I think you know what I mean. The the algorithmic traders where they start and finish the day square. Okay. So the 
so-called high-frequency traders or whatever. It's been declining substantially, and it's probably under 20% of our turnover now. And I would venture to say that it's quite possibly even a lower proportion than on the ASX now. Right. Why is that declining? Because it's, it's not declining necessarily in dollar value, but as our market share has grown, the growth in market share has come from non-algorithmic traders. And it's declined as a proportion of our market share. And yet there are a large number of, uh, of traders active on the ASX who aren't actually active on ChiX at all. So as I said before, you know, we have a very, very high proportion of retail volume on our market. 30% of all orders crossing the spread by dollar value on our market are retail. The equivalent number on the ASX is only 8%. So we have a much, much higher proportion of retail order flow on our market than the ASX does. And that means that we're very attractive to the large institutions who would much rather interact with retail order flow than they would with algorithmic or other types of order flow. That's fascinating. Yeah, and it's something a lot of people don't realize. For some reason, people think we're an HFT exchange. We're absolutely not. We're the complete and utter opposite. That's why we're now launching all of these new products that are very retail focused. So we're launching, we've launched warrants. We're launching uniquely listed ETFs. We're going to be launching our own stock market index. And we're launching trading in U.S. equities in Australian dollars aimed specifically at enabling Australian retail investors to, to diversify into technology stocks much more easily. So our key focus is absolutely retail. And now Richard Atkins of the ASX. Centipoint is a, a midpoint matching service that sits inside ASX's order books and allows our customers to execute their trades in between the best prices in the market. So if you're a, a buyer, you pay a little bit less, and if you're a seller, you earn a little bit more by trading a sense point. Does it allow them to do that anonymously so that it's what you might call a dark pool? It is, yes. All the orders in sense point are, are not displayed before you execute, so you, you don't know what's there. But um, certainly there's a large amount of liquidity there most of the time. Around about 10% of all the value trade on ASX these days goes through center point. So most days you'll see lots of liquidity in, in many of the stocks, uh, and you'll see some interesting prices going through, and those half-tick prices are Centerpoint trades. And so, uh, to what extent are the institutions using Centerpoint in order to escape high-frequency algorithmic trading? Well, we designed Centerpoint really for the end investor, and you've identified they're one of the key uses of Centerpoint. For the institutional investor, they are typically have very large order sizes, and they don't want to disclose too much about their trading strategies in advance. So they make use of Centerpoint by placing their larger orders there. The order remains dark until it's executed, and there's no leakage of their information about their trading intent. There are also controls on Centerpoint that allow them to set minimum trade sizes, uh, and that's one of the ways they can prevent information being leaked through perhaps smaller trades you may have heard of pinging in the market. The controls in Centerpoint are designed to prevent that pinging and to protect the information of investors to allow them get to get a better execution at the end of the day. Explain what pinging is. Well, pinging is where you have dark orders, there is no transparency until there's a trade that occurs. 
So to find out some information about what dog holders may be present, you try and construct the smallest possible trade. Uh, that tends to be a one-share trade. That's the least you can pay to find out something about what's resting in the book. I think ping is a historical reflection of the fact it's a very small piece of information for a potentially large gain. It's a bit like a ping on a radar. You send out a signal, send out a message, and you might spot the top of an iceberg. You might spot a ship in the distance for a small cost of sending that original message. So I think that's where it came from. So what sort of volume are we talking about? Uh, around about 10% of ASX value traded goes through Centerpoint. So it depends on how, big, how busy the market is, but that's certainly three, four, five hundred million dollars a day. So is this only of relevance to institutional shareholders or is it also available to small shareholders? It's available to everybody. You'll need to talk to your broker to work out whether they offer you access to the service. We've talked about how it can be used by institutions to protect their information. The benefit for retail customers, particularly those that are looking to trade immediately, is that they might get a better price than they would see in the market. So let's take an example. Let's say Telstra today is 460 to 461. Uh, if you're looking to buy from Telstra, you would, you would have to pay 461 in the market. If you go into Centerpoint, either directly or on the way to the lit market, you might get a trade at 460 and a half. So you might save half a cent, and those half a cents add up over every trade you do and come to that number of 870 million I talked about earlier. In something like Telstra, there's a very liquid Centerpoint market, so you will get a trade in Telstra if you if you want to trade. So should we see this growth in the dark pool market that you're running in particular as being a backlash against high-frequency algorithmic trading? I think one of the things that Centerpoint does is provide that protection. Uh, and so investors can see value in that protection that we offer through the service. So backlash may be a very strong word, but certainly the, one of the reasons why investors use the service is to protect the value of their information. Happy birthday, Nat King Cole, who would have turned 98 tomorrow. Except he died of lung cancer from smoking at a far too young age of 45. But he is unforgettable. Unforgettable In every way And forevermore that's how you stay That's why, darling It's incredible That someone so unforgettable Thinks that I am unforgettable That's it from me and the team here at The Constant Investor. And thanks to ISM Studios for the music. I'll see you on Saturday morning in your inbox. 